6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Psalms, chapters 22 through 24. Well, tonight we're going to explore three Psalms. As we go through the book of Psalms, we quickly notice that a number of the Psalms are messianic Psalms. That is, they are not only very revealing about the Lord Jesus Christ, but they're also quoted as such in the New Testament. So you'll find different lists of Messianic Psalms. Some of those lists are very long because most of the Psalms are in some way related to, to the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a subset of those that are more classically called Messianic Psalms that are the ones that are actually quoted as such in the New Testament. But we're going to take three tonight that are called the shepherd psalms, Psalm 22, 23, and 24. As we go through the book of Psalms, you'll notice that many of the psalms are annotated as messianic psalms in the sense that they make some allusion about Jesus Christ. And there are some of those lists are very long because most of the psalms, a surprising number of them, have direct reference to the Messiah of Israel in some way or another. There are some of those Psalms that are a smaller list that are not only Messianic Psalms, but they're so uh, alluded to in the New Testament. In any case, these three are called the Shepherd Psalms, Psalm 22, 23, and 24. And uh, the Psalm 22 is going to manifestly describe our suffering Savior. In fact, it is so vivid, it reads as if it was dictated by Jesus Christ as he hung on the cross there on Golgotha some 2,000 years ago. And it also echoes much of the uh, uh, issues in John 10 in the first 18 verses. Psalm 23 is, in fact, the shepherd psalm, very literally, the living shepherd. Most of us have probably memorized it by now. And uh, it, it's analogous to the great shepherd passage in Hebrews 13. And the third of the three psalms we're going to look at is the exalted sovereign. And so we, we, we see Jesus then as the good shepherd, the great shepherd, and then the chief shepherd, as Peter talks about him in his first letter. So the first of these three is the suffering Savior, Psalm 22, regarded by many students of prophecy as the high point of the whole book of Psalms. And uh, what was the occasion? You know, very often when we study the Psalms, we sort of can visualize when David probably penned that Psalm. Here we have this incredible king, Great warrior, but also a poet and a songwriter. These are songs for the most part. What was the occasion that David wrote this? You know, it's hard to imagine or even contrive a situation where David would pen this psalm with a precision of prophecy that's astonishing. It doesn't seem, to the minds of most scholars, most commentators, to relate to any particular crisis in David's life. Many of the other psalms do. Absalom's rebellion or whatever. In this case, it's very difficult to find this because it's a description 
of a criminal being executed. And uh, very distinctive. But there are numerous quotes that confirm its messianic role. It's quoted in all four of the Gospels, and it's also a subject in Hebrews chapter 2, focus. So clearly David, among other things, was a prophet. He's so designated in the book of Acts in chapter 2. So David's many things, warrior, king, poet, songwriter, shepherd in his younger years, but he's also a prophet. And, this, and if nothing else, this particular uh, prof, uh, uh, psalm would uh, so be, be so designated. It's going to be about the prayer and suffering on the cross for the first 21 verses, then it shifts gears. The abandonment by God, very strange passage. That he's despised by the people. He's condemned by the law in, uh, in uh, the first uh, 20 verses. Then it shifts strangely in style, which echoes the resurrection, the praise, the great assembly, the glorious kingdom, and then an allusion to the generations to come. Phenomenal piece of writing by any standard. It's a phenomenal piece of writing if you were assigned to do this now with your knowledge of what happened in that critical week in Matthew 27 and so on. You could do, you have a hard time doing as good a, a summary with both detail and significance. But of course, so we're going to, as we go through the psalm, put ourselves back in our mind's eye to that time when Jesus was arrested at Gethsemane, endured six trials, three uh, Jewish trials and three Roman trials, and Pilate, a very skilled administrator, resorted to six different stratagems to try to get off the hook, to pass this off, but nevertheless virtually got cornered in his world. And we all know how in the topology of the period we have the Mount Moriah, that ridge system, which lies between two other hills, between Mount Zion and uh, Mount of Olives. We have this ridge system, which is the uh, called Mount Moriah, and the uh, city of David at the base of that, the thrashing floor that David purchased from Aruna to be the site of the temple. But a little further to the north, as you go up that ridge system, you finally get to the peak, peak of that ridge system, a place called Golgotha. That's where the Akedah took place in Genesis, Genesis 22, not Psalm 22, Genesis 22, where Abraham offers his son realizing he's acting out prophecy that 2,000 years later, another father would indeed offer his son on that very spot. And that is, uh, of course, the place that we call Golgotha. It's interesting, Leviticus requires all this to be on the north side of the camp. Many people don't realize this. All the burnt offerings and sin offerings were to be on the north side. And uh, the burnt offerings in Leviticus 1, the sin offerings in Leviticus 6, outside the camp in Leviticus 4, without the gate in Hebrews 13, and that's, of course, where all this takes place. It's astonishing to make a list of the Levitical details that were fulfilled at the crucifixion of Christ. Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion, was a fabulous piece of work in many respects, but there's two had two problems. The first problem is it t tends to pr present the crucifixion as a tragedy. No, it was a, an achievement planned before the foundation of the world. The second thing it fails to really get across, of course, is who Christ really is. God incarnate himself. In any case, David takes a crack at it here. To the chief musician up on the Ijeleth Shahar, 
which is, uh, means the dough of the morning. And uh, we have no idea what that means. It may have been a popular tune or a familiar tune to the Jewish ear. Who knows? Help at daybreak, maybe, whatever. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Boy, that echoes in our ears as a familiar term that both Matthew and Mark highlight in our ears when we see the crucifixion recorded in the Gospels. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me? And from the words of my roaring. These are the opening words on the cross in Matthew 27 and Mark 15. My God, my God. Strange term for him to use. This is the only time in eternity that he didn't call him Father. Why didn't he? That's a key question to understand. Because he couldn't. He was in our shoes. It's interesting. Matthew records in Matthew 27. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Three hours of darkness. In those three hours an eternity is paid for somehow. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? By the way, you find some commentators saying, well, that was Aramaic, not Hebrew. That's not true, by the way. I was quite surprised to get the benefit of a book by Douglas Hamp, The Language of Jesus, where he gets into the background, not just of this, but many places. Jesus spoke Hebrew. Sabachthani is a loan word from Aramaic, but had been well established by then. And that may sound strange. How many of you know the word pork or beef? That's French. Most of us don't know that because it's adopted in English. You wouldn't accuse someone of speaking French because he says pork or beef, but those are bar. In other words, there are bar there are loan words, and sabachthani is a originally an Aramaic word that throws a lot of commentators. And I won't get into the Eli Eli thing. That's another whole thing of transliteration. But the point is, it's it's Hebrew, not Aramaic, for those that are interested, concerned with that. Then the, the writer continues, "Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but Thou hearest not, and in the night season am not silent." But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee, they trusted, and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee, and they were delivered. They trusted in thee, and were not confounded. See a contrast here? The, the speaker is conscious of the fact that God didn't abandon in the past. Why is he abandoning him now? When he needs him. You know, it's astonishing to look at the crucifixion. Most of us, as we studied it, look at it from the point of view of observers, ourselves, or the Romans, or whatever, or from the point of view of Christ hanging there doing what he's doing on our behalf. I was, I'm indebted to Pastor Joe Foch for making a presentation. In fact, we were in, in uh, the UK at that time when he, he made a presentation doesn't make very often because he had a case where his son was Desperate in need of emergency treatment in a hospital. So he took him to the emergency ward and got some paperwork type of harassment. And he says, if you don't get him in there, you're going to have need emergency care. As a father, he felt the pain of having his son covered with blood and having to be dealt with. And from that experience then, he points out something interesting that I'd never thought about before. Have you ever thought about the crucifixion from the father's point of view? Allowing them to spit on, to strip, to torture beyond recognition 
and nailing him to this cross. Can you imagine the father standing by and allowing that to happen? Boy, he must love us a lot. But the tortured agony of the one being executed because God had forsaken him. Why? Because we're in his shoes. Why was God absent? John 16, Jesus brags, says, I am not alone because the Father is with me. He was then, but that was the last night. He was dying for the sins of the world. 1 John 2. Let the Calvinists chew on that one. Why was he abandoned? Because, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, he was made sin for us. You and I can't imagine what that means. We can't imagine a holy God being made sin for man. You've got to be kidding. He's made a curse for us, according to Galatians 3. He goes on and picking up in verse 6 of Psalm 22. But I'm a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. What's a worm? A creature of the ground, helpless, frail, unwanted. This is one of the forgotten I am statements. We study the book of John. There's a collection of I am statements. Collection of miracles, collection of discourses, collection of I am statements. This is one we don't list. I am a worm and no man. What does he say? A reproach of men and despised of the people. All that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lips and they shake that saying, he trusted the Lord that he should deliver him. Let him deliver him. See, he delighted in him. Boy, disfigured by his enemies. You know from Isaiah 50 that they ripped off his beard. You don't find that in your Sunday school film strips. Even Mel Gibson with his incredible movie, The Passion, couldn't go all the way, if, if, even if he knew how. It wouldn't be acceptable to any audience to realize the degree to which Christ was disfigured and tortured. There are two thieves with him, one on the right, one on the left. According to Matthew 27, they passed by, they that passed by, they reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroys the temple and buildest in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Remember the taunts? Likewise, the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said, he saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Even, even one of the malefactors which hanged, railed on him saying, if thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other, <laughs> the other answering rebuked him saying, dost thou not fear God seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly. For we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Boy, I wonder if he had any idea that he would go down through eternity as the ultimate example of one that was saved. Because he contributed nothing. Nothing. In extremis. He asked the Lord to remember him. And what did Jesus say unto him? Verily I say unto thee, this, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Praise God for that. I think he's going to be, that, that guy is in for another shock. When the rewards are given, he'll figure, boy, I just got there, with, I got there by the skin of the teeth. 
And I think the Lord will parade before him all those that were came, to, came to, save, to faith on death row in prisons, whatever, because of the witness of this verse in Luke. Anyway, let's move on. Psalm 22, verse 9. But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breasts. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there's none to help. The agony of Christ acknowledging that he is forsaken of the Father. Something incomprehensible to us. I think you and I are going to spend an eternity discovering what it cost him that we might be there with him. He goes on. This is a strange verse. I've yet to find anyone that can explain it to me. Jesus claims in Psalm 22, verse 12, Many bulls have compassed me. The strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. What on earth is this all about? Have no idea. Bashan is that region that we know as the Golan Heights. Known for cattle raising indeed, but it's also known biblically for some other issues. It was the land of the giants, the Nephilim, the, the uh, Rephaim, and Og, the king of the giants. The land of the Rephaim in Deuteronomy 3. Lions are often used as enemies because they're voracious beasts, and that's, that's here and several other places. But what are these Rephaim? Most people haven't done their homework about Rephaim. They know a little bit about maybe the Nephilim, the strange creatures of Genesis 6. But Genesis 6, they also occurred after that, these hybrids. There are four tribes that Joshua was instructed to wipe out every man, woman, and child of these four tribes. That sounds harsh to us as New Testament readers when we get into those passages. The Rephaim, the Emim, the Horim, the Zamzumim. The Rephaim is, the word Repha means dead. These are the walking dead. These are strange zombie-type characters of some kind. Og was the king of them, of Bashan. In Deuteronomy 3, Joshua 12, etc. We also read about Arba, Anak, and his seven sons, the Anakim, that were encountered Canaan. Numbers 13 calls them the Nephilim. Goliath and his four brothers were of that uh, 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 background. Up in the Golan Heights, there are some unexcavated structures, the Gilgal Raphaim, that is uh, an unexcavated archaeological site in the heights, east of the uh, Sea of Galilee, north of the Yarmouk River, um, all the way to Mount Hermon, is the area known as Bashan or the Golan Heights. And uh, this was the land of the giants, the land of these strange creatures. So, what on earth are, what, what is. If Christ hanging, he's surrounded by the bulls of Bashan. Does that mean there's, low, there's, there's cattle around him? I don't think so. I personally don't know. I, I personally suspect that they may some kind of demonic activity going on. But he continues, verse 14, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. This is clearly a description written by David of crucifixion 700 years before crucifixion was invented. It was invented by the Persians about 90 B.C., widely adopted by the Romans, of course. 
Even Haman in the gallows in the book of Esther wasn't hanged. That's a mistranslation. He was impaled. He was crucified, strangely. Crucifixion. They stripped him of his clothing, placed him on a cross. Nails were driven in the hands and the feet. Then he's dehydrated with intense thirst. And what really kills him is suffocation. The pressure of that hanging, the only way you can relieve the pressure is by pressing up with your feet to, relieve, to give your lungs a chance to get a breath. That's why it often would take nine days for someone to actually die that way. I mean, and because they had to get him off the cross, they broke the legs because that would, that would accelerate the whole process. They find out when they get to him that he's already died, and that's, you know, we'll get to that in a minute. The word excruciating is actually taken from this process of execution. Excruciating comes from crux, the, cr the cross. There's a tension effect. You need to understand, you, if you've hung a picture, you know what I'm talking about. If the, if, if the wire is very stiff, the tension's higher. If the wire's long, the tension is no more than a division of the weight. But as you spread those things, the tension gets higher. In fact, there's a relationship. The smaller angle theta gets, the more intense the tension is as a function of the weight. That's exactly what the American Medical Association points out in a classic study of this called On the Physical Death of Jesus Christ, published back in 1986. Here's a quote from it. Due to the pain endured by the weight of the body hanging from the nails, which damage the medial nerves and tear at the tarsals, the respiratory torture, the cramping, the pleural effusions, concluded that death by crucifixion was in every sense of the word excruciating, literally, out of the cross. He continues, I, can, I may tell all my bones. They look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. This is an astonishing detail. When you read in John chapter 19, then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier apart. How many soldiers were there there? Four, huh? And also his coat. Now his coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not rend it, but cast lots for it. Whose it shall be? That the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, they parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. Don't misunderstand John's editorial comment. I don't think the soldiers did it because they knew that was required by scripture. John's inserting an editorial comment here they didn't realize it. That's why they were doing it. The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath day. For that Sabbath day was a high day. Oh, really? That's not Shabbat. That's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This was not on a Friday night, by the way. That won't work. The church has tried to make it that way for 1,900 years. It doesn't work. It was a Wednesday. But anyway. Besought Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Then came the soldiers and break the legs of the first and of the other, which was crucified with him. These soldiers were ordered to break the legs to, to accelerate the deaths, right? But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was dead already. They break not his legs. How strange. If you were a soldier and you enlisted on a 25-year enlistment, when they gave orders, they took them seriously. 
Why didn't the soldiers do what they were told in spite of the fact he was dead already? How sure are they? They weren't quite sure. That's why the one threw a spear and all that, right? One of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side. And forthwith there came out blood and water. And from that detail is where the American Medical Association can, can reconstruct the cause of death. And he saw that it bare record, and his record is true, and he knoweth that he saith true, that ye might believe. John again editorializing here. For these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. Another scripture saith, they shall look upon whom, him whom they pierced. Those are two interesting references, by the way. We gloss over those as we read them. Not a bone shall be broken. And they shall look upon him whom they pierced. That's yet future. They haven't done that yet, but they will. Exodus 12, when the Passover is first instituted in Exodus 12, in one house shall it be eaten, thou shalt not carry forth aught of the flesh abroad out of the house, neither shall ye break a bone thereof. Strange requirement, they're eating this lamb, but don't break a bone. And that goes on again and again. They shall leave none of it till the morning, nor break a bone of it, according to all the ordinances that Passover shall keep it. He keepeth all his bones, not one of them is broken in Psalm 34, 20. Not just here in 22. The Passover lamb was a foreshadowing, of course, of our Passover, Jesus Christ. It shall come to pass in that day, this is Zechariah now, speaking of the future. It shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Zechariah 12, 13, 14, the big climax, the final establishment of the kingdom. And God continues, I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me, the one whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and they shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Psalms. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. Or you can call us on 1-800-KHOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Mm -hmm.